Feminist Without Mystique is brought to you by Kensington's latest title, Breaking Badger by Shelley Lawrenston, a hilarious shifter romance. Fans of Thea Harrison and Nalini Singh won't want to miss this exciting, funny, and sexy novel in the mega-popular series. This is book four in the Honey Badger Chronicles. It's instinct that drives Finn Malone to rescue a bunch of hard-battling honey badgers. The Siberian tiger shifter just can't bear to see his fellow shifters harmed. But no way can Finn have a household of honey badgers when he also has two brothers with no patience. Things just go from bad to worse when the badgers rudely ejected from his home turn out to be the only ones who can help him solve a family tragedy. He's just not sure he can even get back into the badgers' good graces, since the badgers lack graces of any kind. Mads knows her teammates aren't about to forgive the cats that were so rude to them, but Moody Finn isn't so bad, and he's cute. The badger part of her understands Finn's burning need to avenge his father's death. After all, vengeance is her favorite pastime. So Mads sets about helping Finn settle his family score, which has its perks, since she gets to avoid her own family drama. Besides, fighting side-by-side side with Finn is her kind of fun, especially when she can get in a hot-and-heavy snuggle with her very own growling, eye-rolling, and utterly irresistible kitty cat. <laughs> Sounds very fun. You can find Breaking Badger by Shelley Lawrenston wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Welcome to Feminists Without Mystique, a podcast where we process politics, sex, and the unrelenting firehose of bullshit in the news through an unapologetically feminist lens. Each week, we begin by venting about the news, go deep on one important issue, call out terrible things happening below the top headlines in a segment called We See You, and then we'll end with something hopeful. However, this uh, week we're not doing that. We're continuing our series of interviewing authors uh, who will be participating in the Miami Book Fair. This week, we will be talking to Rafia Zakaria um, about her latest book, Against White Feminism. Um, you're in for a, a real treat with our, uh, our interview with her. She has some really um, insightful things to say, which I know because we did the interview and then we recorded <laughs> the intro. So yeah. I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. <laughs> it's, yeah, where we can see into the future. We can see into the future. If we could see into the future, I would be... <laughs> lotto ticket um for sure lotto ticket i would make different dietary choices sometimes (laughs) gas prevention (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well we hope you guys enjoy this uh (laughs) we uh we hope you enjoy this uh interview with rafia zakaria it was uh really fun for us and she has a lot of uh very interesting important things to say All right. Enjoy. We're so excited to welcome to the podcast, Rafia Zakaria. Rafia Zakaria is an attorney, political philosopher, the author of The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan, Veil, and most uh, recently, Against White Feminism. She's also authored many essays for The Guardian, CNN, and The New York Times Book Review. She's a regular columnist for Dawn in Pakistan and The Baffler in the United States. You can also find her on Substack. Against White Feminism provides historical and contemporary evidence as to the destructive, problematic nature of white feminism and why we need to disrupt and dismantle it. 
Per Zakaria, a white feminist is someone who refuses to consider the role that whiteness and racial privilege have played and continue to play in universalizing white feminist concerns, agendas, and beliefs as being those of all feminism and of all feminists. Rafia, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here. So this was a, an incredibly illuminating book. Uh, the interconnectivity between capitalism, colonialism, and the way that white feminism um, historically through present day reinforces systemic power imbalances um, was overwhelming to read about. Um, and you've provided a mountain of evidence detailing the ways in which white feminists have uh, have failed the global majority uh, of women. And it's an important read. I'm going to recommend it to family and friends uh, alongside Mickey Kendall's Hood Feminism. Um, my, my first question um, is sort of, would, I would love to know more about your writing process. Um, did you begin with the frustration with, with white feminists kind of at the core, or did the toxic ongoing problems of white feminism kind of arise from research you were doing on colonialism and capitalism was there like an aha moment where you realized like white feminism white feminists have their hands in all of this or was that the beginning um no i um first of all thank you for this uh for, it's a really good question um look i'll i'll be really honest that as a brown feminist of course i had you know as as you can tell from the book i had been through a lot of these situations, you know, whether uh, it was like, you know, being on a board and suggesting something and meeting silence, and then have someone else suggest the same thing who's not brown, and oh, oh my God, ha having them, you know, celebrated for that. So uh, there are lots of, lots of examples. But my central uh, concern with the book was that I you know, I wanted to make the argument that, for instance, when I have a conversation with one of my white friends, uh, and they want to understand, they send, sincerely, genuinely want to understand, but I felt like I couldn't explain it all to them, you know, like there was no place that I could direct them to. So that book wasn't there, you know, and for a long time, I, I didn't think I could write a book like that. And, you know, more than that, I don't think I could have published a book like that. A lot of things happened. When I first got the idea for the book, my then agent just said, ah, this, this is a complete no-go no one's going to publish this. At best, you could get some obscure little press to do it. Um, you know, I mean, it was really horrible, like a horrible re reaction. And so, I mean, I was just like, all right, well, you know, because I mean, that's usually the first person you show your work to. And uh, so I was like, maybe, maybe it just sucks, you know? And so I, I put it away. You know, it was not until I, I had... A conversation with a friend who helped me get an, a new agent who's African-American who understands what I'm talking about. I will be really honest with you guys until the I held the printed book in my hands. I, I didn't think it would get published because there was a tiny window, you know, following George Floyd's murder. Perspectives shifted a little bit. And so I had to really rush and take advantage of that. And I wrote the book in a furious hurry because of that. So, so yeah, that's, 
kind of the story of the book is that I wanted a book that you or any other feminist could give to someone or recommend to someone if they said they wanted to understand problems of racism within feminism. You did a great job. This is such a this is such a great resource. I'm like, it's like top of the list for recommending to people. <laughs> That's really Let's sweet. See. That's really sweet. Yes. And I was, um, this kind of segues from what you were just speaking about. I was reading that as recently as 2018, you were told, you know, this book can't be published. And then like you just spoke to with the George Floyd protests happening, there's sort of this cultural either shift or this moment. Do you feel that there is real momentum right now toward true intersectional feminism, or do you feel like there's just more, you know, lip service at at play? Is it more in vogue or is there a true momentum happening right now? I think that we are at a transformational moment. And, you know, the reason is, is obvious and simple, right? Because suddenly in this moment during this, you know, continuing pandemic, like the way we're talking to each other is different. The way we put value on virtual versus real is different. Um, just all aspects of our lives have been transformed or are transforming. So I don't know where we will end up, but I know that we are in flux right now. And that's why I, I see hope because, you know, when you are in flux, I'll give you an example. One of the things that people have said about working from home or Zoom or whatnot is that they really miss the interactions with, you know, coffee or whatever, the water cooler. That's one example of something. And at least in my experience, I've only ever heard of white people saying that. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, but you know, um, but it's true. Like as people who are excluded from usually from that chit chat or, you know, people don't know how to relate to us. And we're wary of all those other conversations because that is something that we don't have access to, but it's also something that can make a difference in how your work is valued. So, you know, for, for minorities, and I, this is not in every case, for, but by and large for racial minorities working from home a lack of one-to-one interaction actually creates a more fair playing field because you're not now judging the person on how well you get along with them or how relatable they are. All of those things are, they endanger minorities in the workplace or women, particularly, you know, Black, Brown, Asian women in the workplace. I'm missing meaningful interaction intentional interaction with people without a doubt and essential conversations that you have with friends or um, co-workers but I don't say that you know I I miss the the chats and the chance encounters and stuff because they're a whole <laughs> different thing if you're brown you know so yeah so I think that the outcome is yet to be we can't quite see it yet I'm trying to bet or at least trying to push for a fairer world where, and a fairer kind of feminism, where white, the concern, concerns of white women, the priorities, agendas, as you read, uh, are no longer central, but that still includes white women. So I think things are very pliant right now. And 
you know, I think it takes activists and people like you guys and others who are truly who who get it, you know, they understand that this is a problem and we've got to learn how to have these uncomfortable conversations. Um, so, yeah, so I feel like this is kind of a crucial time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that is so true that there's uh, and something I think probably a lot of people who aren't facing it in the in the office day to day wouldn't think about all the extra calculations, you know, people have to make to fit in in the workplace if you're in a marginalized community. And so taking that burden away, I'm sure just helps. In terms of hard conversations, like you were just saying, I loved uh, the bit where you were talking about choice, choice feminism. Um, There were lots of different vocabulary that I was learning that were new for me um, in terms of things that are helpful for framing how white feminism takes up space, all the space, a lot of the time in conversations um, across seemingly disparate spaces. Um, I, the securo feminist, this was my first time hearing that word or sexio society. Um, but to stick to the concept of choice feminism, you're totally right when you said it seemed like an ironic term. Like it, if you had asked me what that definition was before I read this book, um, I, I had a complete, I would have just guessed out, talked, talked out of, out of my ass or something and like guessed, <laughs> and it would have been wrong. Um, but I just, I'd love to hear more from you. Um, because it was fascinating to read the linking of like, cho- of choice feminism to corporate corporatized feminism and like this sanitized pablum where feminists are fearful of getting too political, being too radical, and thus they offer no judgments or criticisms at all and don't really wade into the politics. So, but on a practical side, are there specific areas uh, or, um, or specific like political or social movements or places on the corporate ladder or places within academia, publishing journalism, where we have a real chance of making inroads with choice feminism and, and pushing, do you think there, are there pliant spaces there that you see? Yeah, I mean, first off, I would say that that was definitely my intention is to try and create a new vocabulary that allows people to frame their experiences in a frame that they haven't used before. Uh, And that's not that's not just you. I mean, it's I think everyone who uh, who reads the book. I read a lot of good ideas coming out of academia. And, you know, sexual society is one, secure feminism is one. A, a lot of this work was being done. But the problem was that there was no one to translate academia to, you know, just someone who is a feminist and who wants to read more about it in an accessible way. And so I set about trying to do that. I wanted to uh, sort of introduce these concepts because they allow us to take the conversation forward. Like they allow us to, uh, you know, not just talk about the same old stuff, not that that stuff is not important. To broaden the umbrella, we have to bring in other frameworks and issues because that's how we keep a movement uh, vibrant. Now, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I feel is very different among the perception about the perception of feminism. And I thought this this morning because I was having a conversation with South Asian 
feminists. So, you know, Sri Lanka, India, and Pakistan. Feminism is dead to them, right? Because for so long, it has so little to offer them that they just don't look at it as something alive. They think of it as something very Western and elitist. And what I was trying to tell them was that one way to re-legitimize feminism, you are going to have to re-legitimize it in a way that you use your local indigenous concepts and you become very vocally and sort of ideologically anti-racist. Because the problem that I saw was that feminism and whiteness were being conflated in a dizzying, just completely indiscernible from each other. And I wanted to try and separate that because I actually think that most of the opposition that women in other cultures or even within, uh, you know, the African-American community, the Pakistani-American community, et cetera, et cetera, most of the opposition is really to whiteness and white racial privilege. By and large, there's a lot more room to talk about the fact that women's lives need to improve. Society needs to become, needs to transform in a way that it's, you know, not constantly making life difficult for them. So that was the kind of thinking. And to to white feminists, you know, I felt like I, I, you know, most, a lot of my good friends are white. The team I worked with to produce the book is white. I wanted, or at least I tried to make it obvious that these things are happening, not necessarily with malicious intent. There are women, I guess, who are actually racist and think this way, but by and large, most white women, they don't know. I mean, you have to make the structure that has sort of swallowed them whole and make its oppressions visible to them, right? Because they don't know the part that they're playing in this larger mechanism of racial exclusion. For white women, that was the issue. It it was to show them that they can play a very crucial part in changing the conversation. I don't think I have all the answers or all the concepts or anything like that, but I felt like I had enough for people to talk about these issues in a less, hopefully a less polarized way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that too, you go out of your way at the beginning and the end to sort of (laughs) assuage maybe sensitive, sensitive white women's (laughs) feelings. Um, So I I saw that at the beginning and end. And, um, you know, I certainly didn't think it was like, you didn't have to, and it was nice of you to sort of like, yeah, all of us just sort of by the end feeling like, oh, this is just, God, this is a lot. Uh, you know, it was, it was <laughs> nice, but it was totally nice of you, but wild ride. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> was a wild ride. No, I, I mean, but uh, the, what I'm saying in those, in the beginning and the end is very genuine. I had to say this because no one has, uh, well, people have said it before, but you know, it's interesting you brought up Mickey Kendall uh, because you know, I very much see this book as, you know, Mickey Kendall did an just absolutely excellent job of describing the domestic uh, situation in the United States, right? And how those sort of mechanisms of racial e- exclusion work. I wanted to take that argument um, into like a more global level. I wanted people to try 
and understand why, uh, say, Black, Black Lives Matter movement is relevant to them sitting in, you know, New Delhi. So that was another aspect of it. The people, Pakistani Americans, whatever, me, who live in diaspora, uh, we have constant interactions with white people, right? So for them, this is like a very, like it's a visible problem. It's quite literal and physical. But for the rest of the world, say South Asia, for instance, uh, they, they don't have any interactions with white people. And their oppression is that they have to do the job of sifting white ideas from the larger sort of epistemology that's been given to them. And feminism is huge, right? Because all of the feminist story doesn't include anyone who's not white. It starts with white women and there's, you know, their campaign for the vote. Now, it's ludicrous to think that that's when, you know, struggles for empowerment began. But in telling that story as a story of feminism, I think a lot of women in a lot of other cultures have taken that to mean that they're not invited to this, to this party. And also for white Americans to understand that this doesn't end in America. It's exported far and wide. Absolutely. In the book, you speak to the connection between white feminism and capitalism. There's a level of self-interest, obviously inherent in capitalism. Um, the needs of the many take a backseat to the interest of the self. Capitalism and individualism are so entrenched in um, American culture and ideas. Do you think we can have a true feminist reckoning where the needs of the collective globally are prioritized without also addressing the failures of capitalism? Can true equity exist in a capitalist society? Well, I mean, what I point out in the book is basically that capitalism ate feminism mm -hmm. whole, right? And I wanted to show how that happened because uh, under capitalism, there is no potential for a radical politics within feminism. So you started out with an idea of feminism as uh, a challenge to social, political, et cetera, structures. And you ended up with like, you know, this technocratic kind of idea of, well, XYZ produces an empowered woman. So I wanted to be able to show that. And also that capitalism doesn't just affect like, you know, the abstract arguments that we're having about, you know, consumerism and all of that. It also affects how we behave as people. So, you know, if you are told as Sheryl Sandberg says in Lean In, to lean in and push and, and it's your career that matters and everyone else who's in the way can just, you know, go to hell. If that's what's entrenched in you and you learn it in all sorts of different environments, school, et cetera, workplace, by the time you are, you know, settled in your workplace, it comes naturally. And this whole idea of girl boss feminism, where, you know, basically, we're gonna take power from men and then behave exactly like men. That's what we have to unravel. Because capitalism, obviously, as you know, is very individualistic, and it prevents feminists from, from being able to see the value in sisterhood. It's always the ladder and climbing the ladder. 
but to but to invest in sisterhood requires a political identity it requires like you know you said a while ago um an abandonment of choice feminism because choice feminism it was created by capitalism to, to dumb it down to take away all the sharp edges of feminism so that it could be tamed converted into sort of a consumerist endeavor of like what you wear and how you're branding yourself and stuff like that. That's not inevitable. That's not the only way we can go. We are at a point where people really have to be told that that there are other models of success. Turning to sisterhood and trying to create a collective around political ideas, there's something in that. Quite honestly, like before the pandemic, uh, not that the pandemic is good, but before the pandemic, I couldn't have imagined that making that being a real possibility. But I do feel that people are rethinking their lives and uh, thinking more about the life they would like to have instead of like just, you know, the rat race. And I think within that, there is room to create an anti-capitalist, inclusive feminism. Yeah, it seems like there there are definitely promising rumblings um, with the strikes that are happening, and it seems like with people being a little little more online and communicative, um, right? Maybe these movements, right. yeah. But and, and it's also conversations that are happening, you know, um, where where people from many different parts of the world are uh, together, you know, in a Zoom call, like or in a Twitter space. Um, and, and that is, you know, I mean, it's burdensome in, in, in one way in that, you know, we are kind of tethered now to our machines, but it, there's also a lot of promise in that, uh, because in constructing that, you know, new digital frontier, we can be mindful of what the problems were in constructing the system that we used to have. Right, right. Oh, I'm, I'm hopeful, and I'm all. I go between being hopeful and being kind of. Um, it's tough sometimes <laughs> not to be pessimistic, especially. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, you know, I got a really good uh, reception and stuff for the book within the United States, but oh my god, the women, uh, British women, white British women, just. I mean, I was stunned. I was stunned at how angry they are about this book. Really? Yeah. I mean, you like they've there were three editorials that were written, uh, you know, two of them. Well, one in The Times, one in The Guardian and one I forget which newspaper it was uh, (laughs) condemning my book and just being so angry about it and saying that I was out to destroy the movement. I didn't believe in solidarity. And now because I was bringing up race within the movement, men were going to win because we are getting divided. And so, you know, there's a problem there in terms of uh, there's both like I mean, I, I think that feminists can have a complicated conversation. I think we are capable of that, um, you know, so which is, you know, my response to all of them is that, look, feminists can do this. They can have this conversation. This doesn't have to be this thing we tiptoe around, you know, for decades. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, we can do it. We can hold many truths in our in our exactly. hearts and our hands at once. 
in your chapter about NGOs and being NGOized, um, you said, even though the very reason for an NGO presence was political, they saw their role as technocratic with politics as a nuisance, a nuisance that makes their job harder. In this way, political resistance is NGOized. And I'd love to kind of dig into that a little. The sentiment reminded me of um, H- Hannah Arendt when she talked about the banality of evil, like we're talking about Nazi bureaucracy. And this seems to kind of be on that spectrum. Like there's something sinister or like at a minimum, deeply irresponsible and careless about NGOs claiming to be technocratic and apolitical and like absolve themselves from real stakes. Um, I just kind of wanted to hear more from you about, about that and um how can people kind of, when they're looking for, uh, for NGOs to support, or, you know, they're, they're trying to, trying to do something good in terms of like, put their dollars somewhere. Um, how, how do you figure out which NGOs are maybe not leaning on technocratic, technocratic excuses, um, and are actually trying to do the real work of change? Yeah. I mean, not all NGOs are, not all of them are bad. There are many, many of them that are doing good work. But the problem is structural. They fulfill a function that allows the post-colonial countries, mostly Global South, to give, a, you know, to set, sign off their sovereignty on issue after issue after issue. It's not that they are benign. It's the, that they want to appear benign then they feel that they will be granted more access to these to the people that they want to help now the problem with that and and this is perhaps an answer to your question about which ngos are good um you know i think it's very important for people especially if you're going to really commit to supporting an ngo um to look at their boards um you know only 2% of the 15 largest NGOs in the world, only 2% of their boards are even made up of someone from a country that has been an aid recipient, right? So it's all white people. That's what the translation (laughs) of that is, is that it's all white people. And, um, and that those are the places to look for. And I say that because I was on, you know, the board of a big international NGO. And um, the problem is, is that there, there's visibility and representation given to minorities, uh, you know, at, at sort of the visible, the optics level. But um, that is completely uh, taken away in, in, you know, when you come to the policymaking and agenda setting levels of governance in an organization. So, um, you know, I personally really felt that. And, and I talk about it, of course, in the book in terms of, you know, how black and brown women are, their role is to tell stories of trauma. And then, you know, a white lady will come on stage and, you know, give them a plaque or something. And an hour later, there'll be a board meeting and there'll be only white people there. So there has been this professionalization of feminism in that sense, where mostly elite, upper middle class white women decide the agenda that they are going to then impose on the rest of the world, because the world does need uh, aid. The examples in the book are essentially, they're intended to show how 
those decisions that might be made in Washington or, uh, I don't know, New York City, those decisions impact real women's lives, right? One of the conundrums that I faced was that, you know, when I, I mean, I knew that there were these examples out there, right? So it's not that I didn't know that there were huge failures in development spending because white women who had like sometimes never even been to those countries uh, were deciding what was good for them. But when I was researching the book, I saw so many examples that I started to wonder if, you know, if, if the purpose of those programs is ever actually eliminating the problem and uh, making it a success. I, I, I really couldn't decide because, you know, the first time you waste a couple of hundred million dollars, like, okay, bad things happen, you know, and et cetera. But like, when you see example after example of that, you start to think, like, what is the point of this? Like, what are, do they actually want these programs to succeed? And the point is, they don't. What they want is a sort of hegemony over various parts of you know, poor countries. And they want more than that to protect the, the moral narrative that sets as white people are good and altruistic and benevolent. What's happened in Haiti? And I wrote about this on my Substack. People are going, they want $17 million. They're so cruel. It's so horrendous. And yes, it is absolutely horrendous. I'm not going to challenge that. But it's also true that that same charity hired a man for six years who was molesting and sexually abusing uh, Haitian kids in the orphanage. The orphanages in Haiti are full of kids who are not orphans, but they, they're there because that's who donors want to, donors want to give money to orphanages. And so they are creating a market for orphanages that are full of these kids that are not orphans. It's important to look at those structures. Like, what would you do if, you know, your kid was uh, for a time in an orphanage uh, in Haiti and he was sexually abused? Like, where do you go? There's no real government. There's no anything, right? So I'm not justifying the kidnapping, but I think it's important to talk about these contexts because the story is often very different than what we think it will be. And, you know, the development examples in the book of clean stoves and, of course, the huge debacle there's in Afghanistan are examples of that. They're also examples of the fact that when you don't uh, support women acting politically and create that capacity within them, it doesn't matter what you give them, whether it's the micro loan or the chicken or sewing machine or whatever idea you've come up with. They will not be able to protect their gains. That's what happens more often. In the short term, women make those gains. But then, as in Afghanistan, I mean, this great example is that all those laws were passed that were more equal and that you know, made up quotas and stuff for women, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there was no sort of grassroots transformation, no sort of political capacity for those women to protect their gains uh, when, you know, the Taliban come in. And so now they're left with zero. I put that blame in large part to white feminists. I think we're going to want to 
circle back and talk some more about what's gone on in Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, and you know the the micro lending and the chicken debacle and all of that. Um, but speaking more to you, you wrote in your book about the white savior industrial complex, and like you mentioned, you wrote a piece on Substack I think yesterday um, addressing the white savior industrial po- uh, complex in Haiti and how this recent coverage of the kidnappings of Americans from Christian aid ministries completely neglected to address the pedophilia that was covered up within that organization. And like you were saying, the fact that these orphanages often don't actually provide any help to orphans, but rather incentivize kidnapping children from their parents to place them into these so-called orphanages, which can become hotbeds for sex trafficking and other things. When inaccurate or incomplete narratives are regularly uh, produced and shared that sort of bring home this this idea of, of white saviors. Um, how can we be better consumers of media when we're seeing these stories out there? How can we do a better job of um, getting to the truth and the nuance and what's actually happening in these um, in these situations? I think a couple of things. I think that I mean, not all authors have them, but but I created my Substack so that we so that there was room for me to have an ongoing conversation with people. And, you know, so that the Haiti piece, it's called Rafia Unedited, by the way, that's my Substack newsletter. Um, but, you know, the example from Haiti is an, you don't hear about it because very often it's difficult to get editors to buy that because editors don't usually like to take chances and they don't know when they don't know how it'll be received. And so I think that uh, we have to start thinking more, um, you know, in terms of not not those usual channels, not the New York Times, not um, the Wall Street Journal, but go to smaller venues. Uh, and if you want to find out about a country, take Pakistan, for instance, right? Pakistan has three huge English newspapers. You can just like type in Pakistan newspaper in Google or India newspaper in Google or Nepal, you know. So, and they all have, uh, you know, in, in these English publications. And I think that 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 is something that we have to sort of get ourselves in the habit of interacting with because conversations are taking place in other places as well. And the fact that they don't make it to the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, uh, doesn't mean they aren't happening. So, you know, I'm really hoping that my Substack, I'll be able to provide as many resources as possible for, you know, women from all around to sort of connect and, and have community. But there's lots of people like me, um, you know, who are, who are doing a similar, similar job, but it requires some extra work, you know, and it requires an acknowledgement of the fact that it sometimes feels awkward or unnatural to go to those sources when, you know, you can just have the times tell you the five things uh, to read every week. I think that the book also, it tries to provide a system of analysis that anybody can use in evaluating information and events. So if I think that if you've read, for instance, about about the clean stoves or whatever I think that uh, or Afghanistan etc I think they give you enough of an idea 
to sort of evaluate a project or, you know, something that's happening and ask the right questions. You've definitely done that in this book in terms of like helping give um, white women (laughs) tools to. No, it's white uh, and brown and black because they don't see it either. You know, I mean, you have to create a new frame to allow people to see reality in a, in a new lens. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that, that's true. Yes. To give, to give everyone language and context and just a, um, a foundation with which to kind of like move forward. You've talked about Afghanistan and you wrote about it in your book, uh, I didn't realize the degree to which uh, the co- kind of the concept of women's empowerment was provided as like justification um, to be to occupy Afghanistan in the years following 9/11. And reading that section, um, especially after the recent disastrous withdrawal, um, there seemed to be this renewed or suddenly my understanding or my awareness of this renewed focus on women and girls being left behind by America, like was cast into a completely different light. Cause I just realized suddenly we're all talking about like the women and girls who are left there. And that's, it started being used as like a justification by both Democrats and Republicans. It seemed like almost a popular talking point for anyone who was um, a, a talking head um, as that was in the top headlines for a right, reason to right. stay. Um, how, uh, and I think that, and I think there's a temptation, there's a, it's a real temptation when people use, uh, the justification of safety. Um, and then they kind of pull in like women and girls safety. Um, there's this justification there, and then it can be a tempting solution. Um, and then in the sense of, especially on top of that, uh, people's inclination to depoliticize. So it might be tempting to say, well, well, most people agree. I think we can all agree on this. And you sort of smooth over the other uncomfortable things like, oh, well, it's a, still a U.S. occupation. How, a couple of questions kind of from that, like how can people resist falling into that trap of, of sort of hearing that safety justification and, and that tempting, getting lulled into wanting to be depoliticized? Surely we all can agree. How do we resist falling into that trap? And then with this, um, with the U.S. withdrawal specifically, what do you what do you wish Western feminists with the loudest megaphone had advocated for when they were being called upon to comment? Wow. Um, yeah, I think that the kind of narrative that was constructed around Afghanistan is very, very, it's very difficult to counter uh, because you know it's like you said, uh, it's depoliticized. Who can disagree with? you know, the robotics team being safe or, you know, the, the basketball team getting asylum. The problem with, with that whole endeavor, as I point out in the book, is that that kind of perspective towards Afghanistan was initiated by feminist majority, then co-opted by the Bush administration as, look, this is the awesomest packaging we could put. The crazy thing is, is that so many women, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, uh, just a lot of the prominent women, Gloria Steinem said that, oh, you know, if we provide democracy, uh, we're going to be, you know, that's going to save us from the Taliban, and we're going to sort of recreate this country in a feminist way. So that all is, you know, something that I go into 
detail in with in in the book because i'm trying to make people more skeptical about you know the co-option of feminism people don't the ngos don't like politics because they they present themselves and this is really kind of important they ngos uh present themselves as neutral entities right that don't have like they're they're not political and so it's like you can't contest them but what they really but of course they they there is a politics to them there you know the fact that you have an all-white board is in itself a, a politics and um you know that that only white people decide your agenda and 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 no one else that's a politics so um i think it's the same way here with afghanistan it's like you know you you have to understand that just because you're saying or someone is saying that they're apolitical is not does not mean they have a politics we all have a politics the tragedy with afghanistan is just that i mean it's a tragedy on both sides right because first of all uh most of the most of afghanistan was not being helped by the united states at all right it's just like they created this kind of little la la land in kabul uh you know with coffee shops that the white people went to and you know said oh great look at how how absolutely progressive kabul has become and stuff like that but you you know it was all within this green zone which is like heavily heavily militarized and and the western feminists that that went there pushed that narrative that one of the things that just oh just enraged me was that even after 20 years of occupation the united states at least from judging from the coverage that as you said happened for two weeks in august and now has been completely forgotten is that that they made use of the exact same images and arguments that they were using in 2001 so you know clarissa ward uh, bless her heart goes out to uh, kabul and you know she's this blonde woman and she makes a big deal of putting on the hijab and putting on the burqa and she's at the burqa shop and i was asking an afghan uh, women's activist what she thought of all that because that that was repeated in some iteration on every news channel in the united states right and the idea is that oh my god look look at these women they're braving the taliban to get us this story and how brave they are and and what this woman told me she's obviously very anti taliban this afghan woman but she said look they're messing things up for us nobody has issued any kind of at that time nobody has issued any kind of edict that we have to be covered that we have to wear an abaya that we have to wear a hijab that we have to wear all these things when you do that in front of the taliban you almost goad them to deploy those kinds of strictures because it's like okay well this is what the world expects and thinks of us uh, so i bet i guess we better do it there was no understanding of it's very um depressing when the narrative essentially says oh the only the only good thing that uh can happen to afghan women is if we somehow got all of them out of the country and somewhere else and like you know people would joke about that but it it's it just enraged me because it essentially shows that you've demonized a culture so much 
And you've, you know, essentially underscored the point that this culture is absolutely incapable in any way, shape or form to support rights of women. If you do that, you've left those women in a terrible situation because it's the it's a complete delegitimization of anything to do with women's rights or women's equality. Carolyn Maloney did her whole song and dance in 2001 and putting on a blue burqa in front of the house in the house of representatives and talking about how claustrophobic she felt. And then this thing was going on in August, she did it again. She wore a burqa to the Met Gala. So, you know, I mean, it's sickening to see that because here are women, Afghan women, who at that very hour were in a very dire situation. And the only sort of support you can offer them is make fun of the political situation they have to face by wearing a burqa to the Met Gala. To me, that's so demeaning. And it's also a failure to recognize that Afghan women are complex creatures, just like American women. Uh, They don't have one problem, they have many. Uh, They're working on many different fronts to make things better for women. So you can't just like, you know, get them out of the burqa. Oh my God, look, you're liberated. Or, you know, just say, oh, here's a school for you to go to. And now you're, you're free and everything is good. That's such a dehumanization and infantilization of people who are not white. And I see that happening again and again and again. And there's very little critique of it. And unless white people themselves start to notice how people of other races are infantilized, people in from countries in the global south are considered stupid because they're not rich. Those things are really degrading. They degrade people who need help. And I think that that's even just morally, it's so... It's so sickening. Absolutely. And the, the centering of white women and their bravery and, and putting on the right. burqa rather than actually telling the stories yep. of the women who are actually there living there every day, not just in front of the, um, the cameras. Uh, yeah. And uh, white, white supremacy is, which goes, you know, plays a role definitely in white feminism is the load bearing wall of so many institutions in America and when we look at institutions like policing and quote unquote international aid, do you think that reforming these systems while keeping their existing uh, frameworks in place can work or that they need to be dismantled and rebuilt entirely in order to actually move away from this, this model of white supremacy and white feminism? Oh, well, you know, like Maria said a little while ago, I, I kind of vacillate between tear it all down, or (laughs) this can be reformed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, um, you know, on any given day, (laughs) I'm either optimistic or, or, or quite pessimistic. But I do think that uh, we, we have the beginnings of, you know, a transformational movement. Um, I think what black feminists have done in the United States uh, is a great sort of it's a really good resource for women around the world to see how you can face tremendous hardship and still persevere and invest in sisterhood, which, you know, Black feminists are actually very, very good at. 
what happens internationally is just a repetition of what happens domestically where the US is concerned, right? So domestically, when white feminists speak the loudest and they occupy the whole conversation, uh, for instance, the example in the book I think is of Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin in the 80s and 90s who wanted the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, right? Um, and one of, the, one of the provisions that they were really fighting for was that every time a domestic violence, police answer a domestic violence uh, incident or call, um, someone has to be arrested. So now black and brown women, even then, told white women that uh, you absolutely cannot put this provision in. This is going to affect us more than it will affect you. But of course, nobody listened because, you know, it was white women saying that we need the help of the state to protect us from bad men where more, by and large, bad men was a reference to black men. They didn't listen, they passed, the bill passed in, in the, with that provision. And I mean, what happened? Black men were arrested at a rate that was at five times higher than white men. Uh, so, and same with Latina, uh, po the Latino population, Latino men. And the consequence of course was that you know it contributed very much to mass incarceration, but it actually um, made life miserable, more miserable for black and brown women because now uh, they couldn't call the police at all, right? Because then this guy will get arrested. Then who will pay the child support? Then who will you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So naturally, the rates of violence uh, in those communities have you know they they rose after that. Um, so what the, you know, white feminists so do in the US, so in that case, you know, get the assistance of the state uh, and uh, to protect you from bad men. The misadventures abroad are, and, you know, they're, they're a repli international replica of that. Because what happened in Afghanistan, for instance, in this war on terror, being a feminist was suddenly recast as, um, you know, in the secure feminism, feminism example, was suddenly recast as a woman who's willing to torture and willing to kill and just, I mean, absolutely grotesque sorts of things. And that was suddenly being a feminist, right? Uh, being strong and, you know, zero dark 30 the movie that I talk about in the book is an excellent example of that. So, you know, once you create those secure feminists, you got to have uh, something for them to do. And so the, the iteration in the past 10, 15 years has been that white women want the state to protect them from terrorists and that where the terrorists are always brown men. But it's the same logic, it's the same idea uh, of aligning feminism with state interests. And that nothing good can come of that. I mean, if there's one thing people who listen, listening to this would take away, it would be this. Feminism has to be a check on the state, wherever that is. Aligning feminism with state interests allows 
our vocabulary of empowerment, all our, uh, you know, all uh, of our concepts to be co-opted uh, by state interests. And, you know, th that's precisely what happened in Afghanistan is that you took like uh, all this feminist vocabulary of liberation and progress and quotas and all of that to Afghanistan. The feminist movement in the United States uh, just they signed on to it instead of being a check. I mean, these were women like Gloria Steinem who protested the war in Vietnam. And now suddenly they became, they thought the U.S. government had become so uh, great and angelic that now they were going to support uh, the bombing of Afghanistan. I think that that is one really good uh, analytical model to keep in mind when when programs are being evaluated, because uh, feminism has to function independently, uh, you know, as a movement, it has to grow, it, and it has to, you know, resolve uh, questions itself, instead of sort of being, okay, well, I'm just going to be an appendage of the state, and that's how it's going to be, because that serves my interests best. Uh, that really it suffocates feminism to develop a politics, you know, especially young women, when you're telling them to de develop a politics for their feminism, where this idea that anything you do is feminist because you did it. I mean, it's just ludicrous, it's ludicrous. So when we are teaching uh, young women to be feminists, we have to simultaneously encourage them to have a politics that they've thought about so that we can contest each other and we can come to consensus. I really believe in that. You know, I really do. And I think that the time is now to be involved in these conversations. I feel like they're happening everywhere. That is great. That's, that's a great note, I think, to, uh, to end it. The time is now. We can do this. Uh, and this and the book against white, your book against white feminism is such a great, a great tool to help us. And it's such a great place to, for, you know, for me to be referring, referring people, I think maybe for the holidays that this book will be showing oh, up in some stockings. Go for it, go for it. And if you, uh, you, and you should buy, you should buy those copies soon because we're really heading into a paper shortage. Oh, um, gosh, and yeah. I, and I'm, I don't know like how many are already printed or what they're doing with that. So it's been a pleasure. My Substack is uh, rafia.substack.com. It's called Rafia Unedited. Uh, would love to hear from you there or on Twitter or any uh, of the social media platforms. Uh, thank you so much, you guys, for your very close read of the book. You know, that in itself is a huge gift to an author um, because, you know, it, it's just, it feels magical. You know, when you write something and it finally goes out there and then someone takes the time and care to really understand what you're saying. So I thank you guys for that. Thank you so much for writing the book and for joining us, Rafael. We really appreciate your time. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Rafia Zakaria. Uh, we certainly did. Um, Again, the book is Against White Feminism, and you can find it wherever books are sold. 
Raffia is just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair 2021, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. She is so looking forward to sharing her work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. Please visit MiamiBookFair.com for more information and follow them on Twitter at MiamiBookFair, hashtag MiamiBookFair2021. Feminists Without Mystique is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.com slash podcasts.